Welcome to our podcast on floodplain management, where we will be talking about the latest news in the FEMA floodplain management space, which is changes to FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program through the rollout of Risk Rating 2.0. My name is Kelly Reddick. I'm a senior managing consultant with ICF based out of Tallahassee, Florida. And my background is on planning and policy with a specialization in resilience planning and FEMA hazard mitigation programs. I've also been a certified floodplain manager for seven years working in the private consulting space. I'm joined today by two floodplain management experts, Josh Overmeyer and Eddie Boza. And just as a reminder to all listeners, this is an open panel discussion about floodplain management and does not represent an official determination of rules or policy. Josh and Eddie, thank you for joining. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll go ahead. This is Josh Overmeyer. I'm a certified floodplain manager for the past nine years. And in that time, I have worked in floodplain management first of all on a coastal small town on the gulf of mexico then i went to the state of florida and worked in the office that eddie is now working in and then i left there to go work for a coastal county also on the gulf of mexico and i serve as the chair of the florida floodplain managers association where of course we represent the floodplain management professionals throughout the state of florida all right, great, Josh. And it's too bad we didn't cross paths because uh, I get to work with you now. It would have been great to be at the office together. Um, my name's Eddie Boza, um, like a bow and arrow, and I'm one of two uh, deputy state floodplain managers at the state floodplain management office in the Division of Emergency Management located out of Tallahassee. Um, our office prepares and reviews local floodplain management ordinances for compliance. Um, provide CRS assistance to communities trying to get more points, um, technical assistance to realtors, uh, plan reviewers, residents. Um, and we also operate a, a, about 80% of our offices operated under a program uh, in FEMA's community assistance program. And thanks for having me today. Yeah, glad to have both of you on. Um, so I think we can really get right to it and kind of dive into risk rating 2.0. So for listeners who haven't heard, um, FEMA is changing the methodology for their flood risk rating process for the National Flood Insurance Program, replacing a rating system that is over 40 years old. Um, so it is um, very exciting. People in the floodplain management community have been pushing and asking for this for a long time. Um, so, I mean, Josh and Eddie, what do you guys think about the, uh, the changes that are being rolled out? Well, I can speak to um, some of the things we we do know and some of the things we don't know. Um, and unfortunately, with so much information that's coming out and um, coming out in almost somewhat phases uh, in a phased approach that FEMA has taken to this rolling out of the program, um, there's still some that we don't um, know uh, how it's going to affect the, the property owners or, or the flood insurance programs, but um, some of the high key points are, are what are changing and, and what's not changing. And some of the things that is not changing that might affect, say, my world uh, in the state floodplain management office um, has to do with how floodplain management concepts and requirements apply. Um, so not really a lot of changes in that area, um, which is good mm -hmm. for our local floodplain managers because it doesn't mean that they need to radically change anything about what they're doing. Um, but we might want to have some conversations about how certain procedures are, are done or not, um, certainly around the elevation certificates and, and some questions around that. But um, I'll let Josh give some of his talking points and then we can get into some of those specifics if you want. 
Sure. And as Eddie kind of alluded to, the National Flood Insurance Program is, is two different things. It's both the insurance, as the name implies, but it's also floodplain management regulations. And communities are mm -hmm. tasked with enforcing their floodplain ordinance as a condition of having flood insurance available in their community. And so for the day-to-day the -day work of a floodplain manager, there's not a whole lot of difference, except that now there's this insurance component that we don't understand as well as we've understood the the rules and, and how you make your flood insurance premiums cheaper by basically just building higher and um, or and or building out of the special flood hazard area. Yeah, and interpreting insurance uh, manual is a tricky thing to do. And there's a reason that insurance agents get a lot of education and schooling to be able to use rate tables and, and use that big thick manual to decide what premiums are. And, um, you know, even we don't understand it today and we, it's even harder to understand if it's being an overhauled um, and the methodology is changing. There's a, a lot of uh, sort of progressive things and, and things that floodplain managers have been asking for for a long time um, to kind of treat the flood insurance mm -hmm. a lot more like your traditional uh, house, you know, home insurance policies, wind policies, uh, some of the, the ways you apply for it and some of the systems you use and, and sort of the ease of, of use um, is definitely a target for risk rating 2.0 and, and modernize some of those forms and processes and, and procedures. Um, but some things that aren't changing are um, things like your basic floodplain management concepts, mandatory purchase requirements, all the waiting periods are still all the same. You know, a lot of the fees and surcharges and caps on annual rate increases are not going away. Um, so we really hope that the program is modernizing, uh, more accurately reflecting risk, um, and that people are excited about it. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about stats, I think, at some point, but a majority of residents will see um, a small to maybe moderate increase, uh, depending, hopefully, more accurately on their risk. This is all about making sure that people are actually paying their true risk rate, whereas mm -hmm. previously the determination of whether you were in or out of a high-risk area was just basically a line on a map. I think we can reference the um, fact that the new risk rating um, methodology is, is eliminating the use of flood zones and base flood elevations from the risk calculations. And I do like I, that's one of the things that I find most interesting about all of these changes, right? Is because, you know, floodplain management is based on FEMA's flood insurance rate maps. And like the NFIP is this really cool mix of policy and science. And as flooding and flood risk continues to change, um, I think that part of this these program changes is FEMA kind of recognizing that their policies and the way that they have set up these programs cannot keep up with how quickly flood risk um, understanding is changing. And so by kind of eliminating the actual flood zone determinations and elevations of property from the risk rating methodology, like they're pretty much acknowledging that, um, you know, there's there's just a lot of unknowns here. And there are um, perhaps um, 
better ways to identify what risk is through these other like catastrophe models that, that they have going. I think the big question is like, well, what are these catastrophe models and and where can we find information on those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you made a lot of really good points there. And, and just because it's going away from the legacy method of using the, the BFE and the flood zone in or out, it doesn't mean that they're not filling that back with hopefully better sources of information, different sources of information that might consider things that the firm studies don't consider, like future conditions or expected development or Mm -hmm. uh, rainfall periods over certain return times and, and things like that. So those can kind of hopefully risk rating can bring some of those things into that black box so that property owners can be more informed. And I think that's the big message is maybe we haven't been as good all along as we thought, but we're working to make it better. And, you know, we want you to work with us. Agreed. And and I don't mean to harp on FEMA because these changes have been a work in progress for quite a while. And FEMA does have a lot of good information on what these changes are going to look like in terms of premium increases or decreases. And if our listeners haven't seen the articles, um, ASFPM, which is the Association of State Floodplain Managers, has really great articles that capture what is changing and what is staying the same with this new program. Um, because it is more than just the flood zone designation component and the incorporation of new catastrophe models that's changing. So Josh and Eddie, I mean, what else can we expect in terms of what's changing and what's maybe staying the same with risk rating 2.0? Well, I, you know, there's a lot of aspects of risk rating 2.0 um, that are unknown, but there's also a lot of known. So things like statutory rate caps on increases are gonna still be in place to help put homeowners on a glide path to their new actual rate. Um, there's uh, gonna be some elimination of some programs for people who are newly mapped in and uh, grandfathered, if you will. So uh, homeowners will wanna contact their floodplain managers or contact our office uh, about understanding what those are, but FEMA.gov has a ton of resources as well. Um, if you just search risk rating 2.0. Uh, but when it comes to the structure and, and how it's evaluated, um, they are adding, they're simplifying some of the diagrams that are used to probably make it easier for computers to, to calculate. Um, they're simplifying some of, they're using a construction material, for example, simplifying that, hey, it's either wood, masonry, or um, concrete, or you know, there's an enclosure or not, or mm -hmm. it's some other type of construction method. Uh, to factor that in. So again, I, I think the overarching message is that uh, hopefully some of the aspects are more simplified and, and easier for people to understand. And I think where a uh, space that is really valuable is how how many programs are going to be available? How, how creative are people going to get to help fill any gaps that come from this? And you know, wouldn't it be great if a homeowner realized a decrease <clears throat> in their home's value because of a new rating methodology? Uh, can they click a button somewhere and apply to a program that'll help fill that gap? Not, not necessarily a gap insurance kind of thing, but hey, maybe there's grant money that can be out there that says, we realize this might impact your financial well-being or maybe you're retired or you're in a you know, fixed income situation or or uh, mm -hmm. you know, in a different socioeconomic status, we want to help you 
adjust for this because it's going to inform those future owners and those are going to be reflected but we don't want to necessarily hurt the people today um, but unfortunately over time data has shown that 25 to 30 percent of flood losses have been in areas that fema's flood insurance rate maps called area of low risk um, mm -hmm. the x zones so um, people don't carry flood insurance and those are the most catastrophic losses when you don't carry a flood insurance because especially after disaster situations there's only programs that can do so much for uninsured um, and they're not nearly what's capable of of replacing during flood insurance loss or claim when you do have a policy yeah eddie you brought up so many good points um and i think it's really interesting especially given you know kind of where where we are now post covid where there are there's a lot of homeowner assistance funding available now you know do we foresee a future where that shifts into you know homeowner assistance that is you know based on increasing um, flood insurance premiums what a world. Yeah, and ideally, maybe even focusing more towards those acquisitions and, and preservation of that as open space so that we can restore those natural and beneficial functions of that floodplain. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to go back to um, to the idea that, I mean, we kind of started with, and I think Josh, you framed it really well, where, you know, the NFIP is two things. It's it's floodplain management and um, I mean, really, you know, development um, and and, you know, ordinances and, and how do you manage development in a way that doesn't harm the floodplain. Um, and then the other sort of piece of it is um, is the risk and the flood insurance premiums. So how do we foresee any potential changes or you know addition like what are additional things that practicing floodplain managers should think about um given this change in the risk rating system and how that might play into you know how they do regulate development and kind of you know do their their day-to-day -day jobs yeah so i'm not really sure how to answer that um if if we could see into the black box that is the cat model and everything that the new rates are going to be based on maybe then it's prudent for the communities to adopt higher regulatory standards that are more in keeping with those those higher rates because of a higher risk and then of course then we have homes that are being built that are less impacted by the potential flooding aspect but then are paying less flood insurance because they're at a lower risk. Yeah, and, and I just reiterate <clears throat> the day-to-day -day life of, say, a local floodplain manager that's uh, tasked with the responsibility of administering and, and enforcing the local flood protection ordinance isn't really going to change that much. Um, in the risk rating 2.0 system, we did talk about how it's sort of eliminating the base flood elevation. We're you know, comparing that to an elevation certificate, for example. Um, the elevation certificate has been a tool that the insurance industry has used to evaluate risk and plug numbers into formulas to find out differences in elevation uh, between different points of the building or, or aspects of the building. And in risk rating 2.0, that goes away. Now, that's not to say mm -hmm. that local floodplain managers still won't be getting elevation certificates and that 
professional land surveyors won't still be filling them out because it is really the most effective tool to get the building official the information that they need. Uh, and one sort of interesting fact about the building code and the elevation certificate itself is uh, the Florida building code, for example, which is based on the international codes, um, the, they require the elevation information to be provided to the official uh, prior to vertical construction after placement mm -hmm. of the lowest floor. But notice it doesn't say FEMA's OMB mm -hmm. form 0-80 or whatever it actually is. Um, so it's not actually a requirement to fill it out for regulatory purposes, but it's so good at informing the plan reviewer or the building official or the FPA um, about what's needed to say that it's a compliant construction. And we've actually seen some communities are looking into their ordinances and how they can specify that specific form or communities that are sort of adopting FEMA's elevation certificate form with their logo or information and saying, you know, here's the form we want you to use just because it's it makes our processes smoother. Uh, so we may see some of that in some of the ordinance and programs that, that are really focusing in on how are they getting what they need being that the insurance company is not going to need this certificate anymore because that was a mechanism to create it and then it was easy to get to them and and now it may be viewed as an additional cost you know who knows mm -hmm. but uh so let's not let that get away from us either yeah well but and i have CR... some... oh sorry Kelly, I think, yeah you were you were going exactly where i was going so me... <laughs> well then you take it away <laughs> as eddie mentioned the the FEMA form for the elevation certificate is not actually required in most situations, but for over 1,500 communities that participate in the community rating system, that actually is a requirement. It's one of the prerequisites to participate in the community rating system and get those discounts for their flood insurance policyholders. And so that will still be in place for, as I mentioned, over 1,500 communities. And in those communities, I believe that's well over 70% of all the policies in the nation. And so that's something that will still be collected and will still be maintained and provided to the public uh, when requested because those are requirements of the community rating system. Something related to the community rating system that I want to mention in respect to Kelly's question there was it probably would behoove the local floodplain managers to reach out to and sort of get a formal working relationship with their local flood insurance experts. There is credit available in Activity 370 for flood insurance promotion, and that even includes just getting technical assistance from a flood, or a flood insurance expert. And so having even just a sort of a memorandum of understanding that when flood insurance questions come into my office, I know the guy or the lady in town that uh, is happy to answer flood insurance questions and, and give people the information that's relevant to their situation Whereas me, the floodplain manager, I'm I'm not really sure how all of that works, especially now with the the new methodology that's going to be going in place. Yeah, and I know it, it's kind of crazy to say, like, but you're the floodplain manager. How do you not know what the effects on the National Flood Insurance Program are going to be? Isn't it in your title? <laughs> um, but there's uh, there's so many disconnects between the way the flood insurance manual treats certain things and how the regulations read. Um, so floodplain managers are very cognizant of this sort of uh, invisible disconnect between the insurance side of things and and the regulatory side of things. And I thought those were really good points. And back to the CRS. Um, they're also really hot on uh, certificate management. They have recently mm -hmm. amended their 
manual uh, with an addendum that awards points and even has a prerequisite to achieve a certain class uh, for you to have an elevation certificate. They actually call it certificate management program or plan uh, because that includes elevation certificates, visa and design certificates um, and other types of certificates that the program uses. So they're giving more points for that and making that part of uh, advancement in the program to have uh, good records and your certificate. Yeah, and you know, while we're on the topic of the CRS, one of the things that um, that I really, you know, commends um, FEMA on for for kind of thinking of this, whether it was intentional or not, um, is that you know previously when communities were joining the CRS, um, benefits of you know of communities joining the CRS and then policyholders experiencing a um a benefit or a decrease on their flood insurance premiums previously that only applied to um, policies in the special flood hazard area and now with these risk rating 2.0 changes um and you know really eliminating the um, special flood hazard area as a critical factor in um uh in premiums then really these benefits um, for you know communities joining the CRS should impact all policyholders, not just those who have a policy and are also in the floodplain. CRS discounts previously were awarded differently whether you were in the special flood hazard area or if you were in the X zone. A preferred risk policy does not qualify, did not qualify, will not qualify. And you know, once this new risk rating 2.0 rolls out, then there is no more preferred risk policy there. There's not a preferred risk that will be paid. The discounts in the special flood hazard area increase anywhere from 5, 10, 15, all the way up to 45% for participating communities that reach each individual class level. In the non-special flood hazard area, the X zone, I guess historically maybe that was even the B or C zone, mm -hmm. Discounts were either 5% or 10%, depending on the level of participation in CRS for that community. And I'm not seeing the chart, but I believe it was 5% if the community was a class 9, 8, or 7. And then at class 6, it jumped to a 10% discount, uh, whereas the, the folks in the special flood hazard area at that point were getting 20%, 25 at class 5%, and okay. so on. So just wanted to point that out. Yeah, and those homeowners that are in the X zones will benefit from those discounts like you mentioned. Um, there's another aspect of how the program is being rolled out that can also, you know, homeowners need, need to also understand. You mentioned preferred risk policies. Basically, um, at the time of this recording, by the time this probably comes out, preferred risk is not going to be a thing anymore because remember any new policies that are going to be rated after October 1st, are going to be under the new methodology, the risk rating 2.0. Uh, but there's a 30-day waiting period. So unless you get your flood insurance policy before September 1st, by the time that policy is going to get go into effect, it's going to be risk rating 2.0. So you'll, if you didn't get your flood insurance already, then you might miss out on a year or two of a preferred risk. That's a really good plug, Eddie. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. Um, so, you know, while we're kind of talking about the the rollout of risk rating 2.0 and, um, you know, the new rating system taking place October 1st, um, the the real date, I think so. And 
and correct me if I'm wrong on this. So after October 1st, existing policy holders who need to renew can still use their legacy rating program if it's cheaper for at least the next year, I think until April 1st, 2022, right? Correct. I believe that's correct, yep. So we kind of have this phased rollout where, you know, really, really not everyone might be affected by this new rating system until April of next year, which, you know, is is really right around the corner once you think about it. Um, but uh, but let's let's look at some of these statistics. So FEMA has released a lot of really um, cool statistics on expected changes to flood insurance policies across the nation. And um, if you go to FEMA's website, they actually have a neat little fact sheet for every state. And then you can download data at the county and the zip code level. And you can look at policy counts and um, percentages um, to see you know, how, how um, this uh, risk, new risk rating methodology either increases or decreases existing premiums. Um, so just to throw out a couple of statistics and then, um, you know, I think it would be really cool to kind of dig into what we really think this means. Um, so FEMA estimates that 23% of existing policies will likely experience reductions, um, but more than 30 or sorry, more than 3.8 million policies will likely see rates increase but just 4% of all of the flood insurance policies across the US are going to experience hikes over $240 a year. Now, like this doesn't sound too terrible on the national level, right? But some states will be affected differently. And if you kind of break things down by state, um, you can see that states like Hawaii, Texas, Mississippi, West Virginia, Florida, and Louisiana um, will all have 80% um, or more of their existing policies increase under the new methodology. And then you have other places like the Virgin Islands, Washington, D.C., Michigan, Maryland, see um, a significant decrease in premiums. So, I mean, my, my hunch on this is that this is where some of those unknowns come in in terms of those catastrophe models and how um, you know, really like how this methodology, I don't want to say is applied, but, um, but really, I guess it is how it's applied. Um, because, you know, Washington DC is vulnerable to flooding. Michigan is currently trying to get a handle on how higher lake levels will impact their floodplain, um, and their infrastructure and how that, you know, might impact future policies. So, um, I know we kind of just you know went through that really fast but um you know i would love to hear your your thoughts on what we think what we think this means in terms of rollout and who's going to be affected yeah so i think it's pretty interesting to see that among those those five states you mentioned that are going to have uh, policy premiums go up you've got both Inland and coastal states, West Virginia, as well as the Hawaii's, Texas, Mississippi's, Florida, Louisiana, you know, so mm -hmm. it's it's not just a coastal issue. This is something that's going to affect policyholders throughout the nation. Yeah. And, you know, you got to think that 
the rating method, uh, if the premiums are increasing, then they were at more risk than we thought, right? So um, there is a, an aspect of, of maybe some equalization of uh, or, you know equity in action, like they like to say. Um, I believe the idea is, uh, and, and an interesting study was done in, in our state where we analyzed the flood zones of properties that are um, seaward of what Florida calls the coastal construction control line. And you would think, mm -hmm. you know, anything seaward of this line is, is V zone, it's high impact wave driven, you know, action that's going to damage homes. And we found that like 10% of the land seaward of that line is in an X zone or in an A zone. And so you have interesting the, yeah you have this situation where you might have a person that's right on the beach or close to the beach or across the street from the beach in the current methodology that's paying an x zone policy when you've got a person that's behind them in an a you know ae zone because there's a river that drains into the ocean or there's a tributary nearby and they're in the floodplain of that river and they're paying more than this person that's on the beach that's facing storm surge and facing rising seas and all this so you know i i think the plan and, and i hope the plan was and is and always w was developed to be um that you know unfortunately these these are at more risk and that's why they're seeing increases but the majority of people are only going to see low to moderate but we'll see how it shakes out as that phase out occurs which that's another thing that you got to know your flood insurance agent or find a friend that knows one because there's just so many different aspects of what they apply uh there could be changes in maps during your renewal period or during getting a new policy that may become effective or not effective yet. So there's just a lot of situations where where they're applying. But I, I do think the message is that at least until April 1st, in most all situations, FEMA or the, the rates are gonna reflect what most benefits the homeowner, whichever methodology. Um, but put a little asterisk next to that because I'm not an insurance agent. <laughs> um, yeah, nice, and I nice disclaimer in there. I think it's important also to point out that the 23% of policy premiums will be going down. There will be some kind of decrease in the amount being paid by the folks who currently have flood insurance policies in place. And so that's a reflection of acknowledging that you're actually paying too much right now. Your flood risk is lower than previously thought or previously understood. And so that's going to be a, a huge thing for folks. I believe some of those decreases are something like a thousand dollars a year, um, mm -hmm. if I remember right, from our conference this year. And so, you know, that's that's huge. That's money back into the pockets of policyholders and homeowners, you know, throughout the nation. And how many of those homeowners do you think are speaking up, you know, because they think it's unfair? Probably none, right? So it's the people that are going to see increases that are going to go to their community official or their representative or their senator. Um, and we have seen um, where there are people in legislative bodies that are are bringing up legislation uh, legislation on this and trying to protect their constituents and, and their residents and well-beings and um, their insurance premiums to, to try to rein in the program. Um, that's really interesting you bring that up, Eddie. So, I mean, can you give an example, like what kind of, of legislation and things are we seeing being brought to Washington in response to this? Um, I, I believe there's at least, you know, and when I say introducing a bill, we got to remember the legislative process, uh, 
you know, it's not your schoolhouse rocks. It's just all automatically happening. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've seen some reps uh, filing bills that include language that would require Congress's approval to change the rating structure. Um, that's not something that I'm actively tracking, so I can't speak to uh, as, you know, where that is or who brought it up or who's supporting it. Um, you may have states that are looking at similar initiatives, um, or you may have uh, legislation that says don't do it, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, again, not something that I'm super honed in on, but, uh, we do catch some of those clips as they come. Sure. And you've got to also remember that we're, in, we're in an era where the national flood insurance program has been continued, I guess is maybe the best way to put it, um, through a period of temporary authorizations. So the, mm-hmm. we're we've been in this this process since I believe it was 2017 when the Bigger Waters Act and the Homeowners with Flood Insurance Affordability Act those those two bills in conjunction from 2012 and 2014 those authorizations for the National Flood Insurance Program to even exist expired in September of 2017 and so as our elected officials have have changed throughout that past uh, I guess we're all looking at four years now and a um, couple different presidential cycles in there as well. We're waiting on the program as a whole to be reauthorized and give us some stability and understanding how the program operates, how it's going to be funded, things like that. So yes, there are bills specific to the risk rating 2.0 and whether or not FEMA can do this unilaterally uh, from Congress, as well as what Congress's responsibility is to the National Flood Insurance Program to, to keep it operating. Yeah, and I, I think it's a good opportunity to, to plug that the association, the, the ASFPM, the Association of State Floodplain Managers, um, if you're in the world of floodplain management or you're a certified floodplain manager and you're not a member, uh, join because one of the benefits of membership is access to articles about these things, up-to-date policy briefings, and uh, just a lot of good resources for floodplain managers to stay up on a lot of this stuff coming from the association. Yeah, absolutely. I know that is um, that's actually where I get most of my information. ASFPM has has really lovely um, and informational, you know, materials on all this stuff. They they really stay on top of things. It's it's great. So um, so we talked a little bit about Florida and um, and Eddie. You know, you mentioned the um, the analysis that the the state undertook, where you're looking at the coastal construction control line and um, and floodplains that are are seaward of that line. Um, so I was looking a little bit into you know how Florida shakes out with this because um, Florida and and you I know you know the statistic. Um, like the back of your hand, but Florida has something like 30% of all um, policies in in the U.S. Um, and so it's not not super surprising that Florida is among the top that are set to experience, you know, a, a pretty high um, percentage of uh, their premiums will be increased. But um, but I was surprised digging into the Florida statistics that I mean the same stat holds true for Florida where 20% of policies are going to see decreases as well. Um, now this is kind of all over the place. So, um, again, you know, what are those catastrophe models saying? Um, you know, what is it about Volusia, Walton, Liberty, Marion, and Bay County that, um, 
you know, that warrant a, a decrease in their policies. But, um, you know, how, I guess, how do we feel about how Florida shook out in, uh, with all these stats? Well, I think you got to kind of look at it from a, you know, proportional perspective as well. So you mentioned, you know, about 30% of the policies in the NFIP come from Florida. Florida's what the third largest state by population. Um, so that's not surprising if, if Florida is seeing a number of increase, but also think about how many, how much coastline there is. So, mm -hmm. you know, a thousand, eleven hundred miles of coastline. Um, and when you do think areas of high risk, I mean, the, the V zones are called areas of high risk. Um, they're your coast, coastal communities and coastlines. So, um, you know, it is what it is. I, I think um, the overarching theme again is is low to moderate change, but um, the policy data that comes out of Florida and contributing about 30% of the premiums and not collecting that much in claims, um, not quoting any statistics or anything, the, <laughs> the claims data is very guarded, um, mm. but uh, a significantly smaller portion of the claim payouts in the NFIP go to Florida policies. And I think that's a real testament to Florida's building code initiative uh, that started in the early 90s and has been continued and um, basing on the ICC codes and even developing a, a stronger building code that may even go above and beyond that and how our local floodplain managers are administering their programs. And they really know a lot about floodplain management when it comes to how to permit it, uh, what the rules are and the regulations to apply so that those structures are better protected. Um, FEMA has this program out there right now. Um, I can't remember exactly what it's called, code awareness or know your code, um, where you can go and search and see if your community enforces building codes and you would be amazed at how many parts of the country don't have any building codes in place. And the Florida building code is mandatory everywhere. So we're already even uh, doing a really good job there. So what I'm hearing from both of you in terms of what, you know, floodplain management practitioners can be um, doing right now to help, you know, prepare for this rollout, to understand more about it, and to um, also be able to, you know, help um, property owners who are trying to find more information is to um, really like build your network, um, you know, find resources in the um, insurance field that can really help you, you know, communicate these changes and help individual policy uh, holders, you know, understand what their changes mean for them. Um, are there and um, are there any other you know resources or organizations that um, you guys would would want to recommend to practitioners to um, uh, to reach out to and and to look for those resources? Well, I you know I can I can steal his thunder if he wants, and <laughs> <laughs> you can let him do the plug. But the Florida Floodplain Managers Association too. I mean, they have this amazing training program. If you're not a member, become a member, take advantage of those courses. They're doing a great job uh, standing up all kinds of education from introduction to floodplain management all the way to advanced courses and um, updates in the world. And, and being connected into those groups is really going to get um, a lot of information out and traction. And some of Florida Floodplain Managers Association strategic goals include working with other states and other organizations and, and making that program even more robust so that somebody in Oregon that wants to learn about Florida can join and, and maybe the Oregon Association 
uh, gets a discount, like our members get a discount or, you know, or FFMA's members get a discount. So that's a tremendous resource. Well, and since Eddie stole my thunder on FFMA, I'll also plug that the state floodplain management office in, in every state uh, stays on top of these things, just as you can see, Eddie's well-versed in this information. He's got compatriots in, in all 50 states and other U.S. territories, and so your state or territory or commonwealth uh, office will floodplain management office will have information for you as well. Excellent. I, I always forget about those commonwealths in uh in the u.s um well thank you so much um both of you for for the discussion and i think you know if there was was one more thing that we would want to leave listeners with is um you know to to keep an eye out for for funding that helps um you know reduce flood risk because that does have um that does have benefits for communities that participate in the CRS. It benefits, um, you know, individual property owners. Um, we'll just have to see, you know, how that rolls out in terms of their premiums. But there, there is a lot of funding available right now for resilience, for floodplain management. Um, in particular, you know, FEMA has their flood mitigation assistance program. There's $160 million available nationwide to address um, specifically to address flood risk at NFIP insured properties um, with a prioritization on severe repetitive loss properties and repetitive loss properties as identified by the NFIP. And um, those application cycles should be opening up on September 30th. So, um, you know, just be aware that there, there's funding out there that's available to, um, to help you make sure that you're mitigating your, your risk on a community level as well. And I'll add that there's also state funding opportunities. Uh, I know that ASFPM recently pulled members about whether their states had specific mitigation funding. So they might be putting out some kind of list like that in the future. Um, and states might have different agencies offering grants, uh, whether that's the natural resources, environmental protection, could be economic opportunity. So I think it's getting increasingly important to really target the best grants for what your particular project is and identifying those funding sources ahead of time and like a mitigation plan or a strategy, uh, staying plugged into your local and state officials can put you in a good position to identify those programs and really making sure that they're the right fit for what you're trying to achieve. Thanks for joining. I really enjoyed this, this discussion. Yeah, well, thanks for having us, Kelly. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. And if I could, I'm just going to give a plug here for the Association of State Floodplain Managers annual conference. The Florida chapter, the Florida Floodplain Managers Association, will be hosting on May 15th through 19th, 2022, at the Carib Royale in Orlando. So if you go to floods.org and sign up for the conference, we'll, we'd love to see you there. Come hang out with us and uh, probably over 1,500 floodplain management professionals throughout the, the nation will be there, and even usually some international floodplain management folks from the UK and Australia too. So it's a great time. I've been to, I think, six of those conferences. Love every single one of them, and it'll be a great time to share swap stories and, and learn from your other floodplain management professionals throughout the nation. And there's a couple of parks or, or amusements or attractions or something around that area too, I think. Something yeah. like that. Some some <laughs> wizard and some mouse. I think. <laughs> some extracurriculars. 
Um, no, that that sounds great. And, um, you know, I, I haven't had the pleasure of being at a ASFPM conference, but I, I have been to the FFMA conferences that are, are Florida specific. So I'm really looking forward to, to taking advantage of that national conference being so close to home this year. And I hope to see you all there. And we'll finally get to meet in person. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Kelly. Thanks, Thank Kelly. you guys. <laughs>